0: The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to episode 43 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. Over the next five episodes, I'll be talking with survivors about their stories and about fitness and introduce you to some great options to get moving again that you may not have even considered. I help people get moving for my job, and I know firsthand the disconnect that happens following treatment. Your heart wants you to be where you were before. Your head has some reservations about getting started again or getting started at all, and When you do, your body's like, hey, been through some stuff over here. Sometimes when movement doesn't look like it did before or how we think it should look, we can get frustrated. Or maybe you didn't have a movement practice and it's all just a bit scary to get started. So my goal for this month is to flip the idea of exercise as something daunting and turn it into something that's fun that keeps you coming back again and again. That is why I am so excited to introduce my guest this week, Helen White. She's a USA Pickleball District Ambassador for Northeast Virginia and Washington, D.C. She's founder of the nonprofit Breakthrough Community Sports and the owner of Pickleball for Life. She's a senior athlete and also a breast cancer survivor. And I think you're going to really be inspired by this lady today and be ready to head right out to try some pickleball. Welcome Helen, I'm so excited to have you here today. I'm really excited too because later I'm meeting you to play some pickleball, so that's going to be super fun.
1: Absolutely.
0: So I would love to have you share your breast cancer story. So we got connected through Two Unstoppable. I had Met one of their representatives at an event many, many months ago when it was still, uh, when we were still able to meet at events. And I was looking at their site since our focus in the month of December is on movement and exercise. And I'm a big, big believer in exercise is only sustainable if we enjoy what we're doing. And there's some element there that keeps us showing up. So during the month of December, I'm highlighting all kinds of different types of movement. And I mentioned meeting you for pickleball later. And you were listed on the two unstoppable site. And then we connected via email. And so I'm super excited to hear your story, because from what you've shared with me, it's really awesome. So I would love for you to share your cancer story with us today.
1: Okay, well, thank you for letting me be on your show. Uh pickleball is my passion and um uh cancer is something that um what came up unexpectedly. So let me let me get started. I think it's important to know a little bit about my family background. I was I'm from Syracuse, New York and I'm one of 11 kids. Wow. <laughs> So that explains a lot about my everything I do. <laughs> I'm number three.
0: <laughs> <And> I moved, <laughs> moved to the D.C. area
1: in 1975 and have lived in that in this area ever since then. So, anyways, um, I identify as a senior athlete. I love that. And I am uh, a medal winner in national tournaments in both uh, basketball and pickleball. So that obviously defines a lot of my life. Um. So, my cancer story begins in March of 2018. I went in for an annual physical. Great shape. Uh, I noticed that my belly was a little getting a little bit uh, bigger. I was adding a little bit more weight, but nothing serious. But you know, just just noticed that. But you know, whatever. Then I went in for my screening mammogram about a month later and uh, got the call back. I said, hmm, "What's this all about?" And then I got the ultrasound guided mammogram and was told I had something, a suspicious spot in my left breast. And I said, what's this all about? And of course you get, a—I kept going further and further into the, the rooms at the um, radiation at the ultrasound place, you know, as uh, things got a little more serious, but then uh, I started, I needed a biopsy and um biopsy came back and confirmed invasive ductal carcinoma in my left breast. And uh, eventually I found out that it was a slow growing stage one hormone positive ER negative. And all this happened two months before I turned 65. Wow. What a surprise. So um, I am a information gatherer researcher and immediately hit the books, hit the, hit the website. What are we talking about here? And, and uh, wanted to become an informed patient, informed consumer. Next step was a bilateral breast MRI and a consult with a breast surgeon and radiologist. Fortunately, I found two very good people who to, to um, work with me. And about a month later, I had a hidden scar lumpectomy. And a couple of sentinel nodes were removed, outpatient treatment. And um, I'm on to the next step the next step was to um it was radiation and they said I was a candidate for the SAVI applicator and that's the accelerated partial breast air radiation which delivers radiation from inside the breast so I had an, an a device inserted into my breast and then um for five days I had radiation applied twice a day to that site and what it was I had this device was in my breast and it had tubes extending out like six six or seven different tubes and what they did is they sent they attached me to a machine and sent radiation seeds down these tubes into the tumor cavity and zapped it so my um uh, what i <laughs> During, during the treatment, um, they were playing some music. And I said, hey, can I can I give you a playlist? <laughs> so I, every day, twice a day, I came up with power songs that were really meaningful to me. Like, like rise up. Like, ain't no mile, mountain high enough. Um, Stand in the light. The, the fight song. Um, Hit me with your best shot. You know, <laughs> so I, was, I was listening to that wonderful music while they were zapping me. And that really helped me get through. And um, during the treatment, you know, I got to know the radiologists and the the um, staff. And pickleball always comes up, and so they knew I was um, a pickleball player, and (laughs) they knew about pickleball by the time I finished my treatments. Um, So after the radiation, um, and that during that period, there were no showers, no physical activity. It was a little tough, but you know, it was only five days. I could I could do it. Um, About a month later. I was referred to an oncologist, and um, the recommendation from from everybody was to uh, be put on an aromatase inhibitor. Well, I went with a friend to the uh, to the oncologist, and um, her office. In order to get to her office, I had to walk by the infusion tables, and that was pretty um, eye opening and pretty. Um, I, I I was just never seen anything like it. Should I say? Anyways, um, I talked during my conversation with the radiologist or with the oncologist. Um, she recommended AI, but I kept asking her, you know, what is the recurrence rate if I take the drug? If I don't take the drug, what can I do to to, to heal my body that doesn't require drugs? And although she was a very knowledgeable oncologist, I just got the sense it was her way or the highway. And she wasn't willing to deal with a motivated person who would was willing to change her diet, was willing to exercise, was willing to reduce stress and do all the things that I think are recommended to heal your body. So I walked out of there and said, "I can't do this <laughs> so um she said, "Well, think about it for think about it for a month, and then if you change your mind, come back but meanwhile, i I uh, had a genetic test done because there was uh, some occurrence of cancer in my family, but fortunately that came back negative. And, um, and then I did find another oncologist and had an interview with her and actually was going to go with her. She seemed like really nice. She seemed like someone who I could work with. But by the time I was ready to sign up with her, she had taken another job out of the area. And I said to myself, it's a sign. This is not the path that this is not the path for you. So um, I have chosen to um, work with it, with both traditional medical system as well as the alternative medical system. Um, Throughout my treatment, I was working with an acupuncturist. I found a naturopathic doctor who was looking at the whole body, and there were other things in my body that weren't quite right. And she was willing to treat me, work with me to fix those those problems. And um, I also did a pre and post test with a physical therapist and a physical th- physical trainer because I wanted to, I didn't know what to expect from the surgery and radiation. I didn't know what impact it would have on my body. I knew what my goals were after afterwards. So I wanted to know, okay, here's where I am now before these procedures and where am I after, after the procedures and then how far, what do I have to do to get back to where I was before? So one of my, Themes in my life after this is, um, well, I like to say is come back better. Yes. And that's been one of my goals for um, getting through this chapter in, in my life. So in September of 2018, this was several months after surgery and radiation, I did feel another another lump. In fact, I never felt a lump in my breast before being diagnosed with a mammogram, by a mammogram. Um, so I went in and found out it was something called a fat necrosis.
0: Oh, was you know, it caused by the radiation?
1: It was caused by the procedures, right? Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a non-cancerous breast condition. It's, it just felt weird. And I, and did the research and then I ended up talking to my breast surgeon and she said, you can let it go. It's nothing. It's harmless, but it was, it was a foreign object in my body and I didn't want it. So she, um, offered to aspirate it. And so I went in for another procedure to have it aspirated and, um, it seemed to seem to work, but it's another one of those gotchas, you know, yes. <laughs> it goes through this, nobody told me about a fat necrosis, you know, it's like, I have to find these things out for myself and, and then <laughs> react and then react to it as opposed to, you know, anticipate and prepare for it. Yes. Um. So I've been, um, I've had another, I've had a number of mammograms since, um, since my surgery, and how often do they do them? Um, It started out every six months, Mm -hmm. and now I'm on an annual basis. It's been a little over two and a half years since, since my surgery and since my my diagnosis, and um, I'm feeling great. I'm back, (laughs) just good. Uh, Although I did have another setback in that, a year later in September, I had a septic knee.
0: Oh my.
1: Totally out of the blue septic knee. Yeah. So I had to go, I went to the hospital and was in the hospital for like five days. They drained it and um I had to learn how to walk again. Wow. And the, to this date, they don't know what caused it. They don't know what type of septic infection it was, but uh, all a it was pretty serious. And and once again, I found good doctors and they took care of it and I'm
0: back. <laughs> That's so interesting with the septic knee, because I do think when we have some of these treatments, even though we are otherwise feeling really good, like there can be longer term impacts to our yeah. immune system that we're not even, no one's even really fully Aware of to tell us what to look for.
1: I would agree with you. I, I haven't been able to trace it back to what could cause it, but it's such an unusual thing to happen. Um,
0: how many? Do you know how many lymph nodes they took out? You said the sentinel node, but did they do yeah. more than one node or just and one? I think they
1: just took out a, like two, two to four nodes. Okay. Yeah, I actually asked my surgeon to take a photo of the tumor. And then in recovery, see what this thing looks like. And then in recovery, she showed it to me. And I was too woozy. Woozy said, will you send it to me? And I, was, I remember her saying, well, I just deleted it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually a big believer in, in taking photographs of things that happen to your body because it's just further evidence that you can share with your physicians about what is happening to your body.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's so funny that you say that because when I had my port taken out, I was like, can I have that? <laughs> and she uh-huh. was like, you want your port? And I was like, well, I don't really know what it looks like. Like I know I have this cord uh-huh. that cause I could feel the cord was palpable on my, against my ribs and it ran up to my collarbone and kind of looped over. So I was like, well, I mean, I've just felt this cord. Like I'm curious what mm-hmm. what it is. So I came out of recovery from having my port removed, and they removed my port when they did my reconstruction. And the nurse was like, Here, this is yours. <laughs> this is in a hazmat bag. Yep. And I was like, Oh, that's really interesting. She was like, okay. <laughs>
1: it is, it is quite, quite fascinating. The engineering that goes, goes in behind the devices that, uh, that we use or they insert in our bodies. It's fascinating.
0: Yes. Well, and having a port was so critical for me because having, I have mild lymphedema and I had had nine lymph nodes removed. So my left arm was off the table in terms of doing blood work Mm -hmm. and I had to have chemo. So when I was about halfway through my chemo, I had to give blood every week. And the last time that I went to the, to the phlebotomist to do my blood work, like she could barely get anything. And then I, they had to use my port exclusively. So I can't imagine like having all my treatments without my port that would have just been really difficult for yeah. all involved
1: <laughs> yeah so uh, i have a low blood pressure which is i think a good thing but um and i've had to give a lot of blood during the past couple of years and it's really hard to find the veins but what i do is i i drink lots of water before i go into see my to see the pharmacologist because yeah it, the blood volume is so low so that's a tip for your for your listeners is to, uh, to drink lots of fluid before you get a blood test.
0: Yes, absolutely. And when you're in something like when you're undergoing something like chemo and radiation, it can really dehydrate you. And I think that's another thing that is not as talked about. Absolutely um, not. The And the electrolyte depletion, I was also an athlete um, at the time of my diagnosis, and I was in fantastic shape. And Everything was found through the regular, I had a little birdie and the, I had a little voice in the back of my head saying, go get a mammogram. And I was 43, didn't feel any lumps, none of that. And to the point where my doctor was like, they're wrong. It's going to come back fine. And I was like, yeah, I was in the ultrasound. No. Wow. (laughs) But well, when I was going through chemo, mm-hmm. I was like consuming electrolytes, like nobody's business. And that was what actually kept me feeling good because my body was just so depleted of all those things when you're undergoing those treatments.
1: That's a good idea. I hadn't thought about the electrolytes, but that's a that's
0: good, good, good recommendation. it's really interesting. So we are going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to talk more about, I want to hear more about the techniques that they use with your radiation, as well as um, the declining the AI, because I also at a point in my treatment had that same conversation and it was a challenging one. So we'll talk about that when we get back. Hi, Jen here. I hope you're enjoying the show. When I finished treatment, I discovered survivorship was way more challenging than I ever expected it to be. There are a lot of things no one prepares you for. I attended one support group meeting and knew that was not for me. The more people I talked with, the more I realized I was not alone. This podcast is a forum for people to share their cancer stories from start to present, And my Facebook group is a gathering space for people to find positive inspiration on the not so positive days in a community of people who understand the challenges of this journey. So come on over and join the Facebook group. Surviving is just the beginning and be part of the conversation. When you see the question, how did you hear about us? Be sure to mention this podcast episode. I look forward to seeing you there. We are back. I'm here with Helen White and we are talking about her breast cancer journey. And there were so many pieces to her story that I just love. Um, The playlist. I, I definitely heard some of my songs on there. I think the mental component to this is sometimes the most challenging. I see that with clients coming into my studio Or resisting coming into the studio because they want to get moving, but there's that fear. And there's those mental, the stories that we're telling ourselves. And I really loved that you took control of that, you know, mental component of the radiation to stay in that uplifted space.
1: Yeah, that was pretty powerful. Uh, but I have to preface it by saying that once I got my diagnosis, I was an angry person. I was mad at the world. I was mad at, at everybody because I couldn't believe I was this cancer statistic. You know, thousand mammograms, hundred callbacks. What is it? Um, you know, only two to three percent of people actually get breast cancer, although it's one out of eight uh, women. I couldn't believe I was a statistic given, given my lifestyle, given who I am. So I had to, I had to work through that anger uh, before I could accept and move on. So I wasn't a happy person for a while, but once I worked through that stage and accepted my new reality, then, then I turned to the positive and the power songs were just so uplifting. And uh, I think they made the radiology radiology staff smile as well because <laughs> they were they were they were playing classical music, which is fine, but kind of downer yeah <laughs> I wanted something that was uplifting that would keep my spirits up and it worked
0: and I think when you have something that's uplifting in that way too it distracts you where I sometimes I feel like if I'm writing or something, and I want some, and I want something in the background, like I'll put something on that's instrumental, that's not doesn't have words, that isn't necessarily going to distract me. And I think in that context, like we want a little bit of distraction oh, yeah. and a little bit of something that we can kind of lose ourselves in.
1: Absolutely, and those, those songs also brought back good memories of, of of how where I associated myself with those songs. For example. Uh, hit me with your best shot. I I used to go to a a senior women's basketball camp, and that was our theme song. And it just brought back so many good memories and the endorphins that come with it. And you know, it just put me in a really good space.
0: Yeah, I love that. It's interesting too because music does tie us to so many things, and that's very powerful. And I think it's really important to say as well that. I think the anger is normal and processing. The most important thing you said about that though, was that you processed it. Like you, you looked at it, you worked through it and you came out on the other side to find those positive components. And the reality, one of the other things that I think we don't talk about, one of the truths of this, these cancer stories is that Nine times out of 10, we're never going to know the why. And that can be very frustrating, especially when we're fit and healthy and have, you know, reasonable diets and a good sense of physical fitness. I was a runner and I had someone at an event say to me one day, well, it's very, it's very important that we talk about prevention. Like people should eat well and exercise. And I looked at him and I said, yes. And I was at the best weight of my life. I'm gluten and dairy free. I eat very little sugar. And I ran on average 30 miles a week. And I kind of looked at him and I said, and I was diagnosed at 43 with breast cancer. So please stop telling people they can prevent this because maybe they can't. And it's not my fault. And he was shocked, like just the shock on his face. And I said, and it was interesting in 2016, there was a study that showed that people who live in high traffic areas where there's a lot of car exhaust are at higher risk for breast cancer and prostate cancer. They've tied that to, and I said, and I'm a road runner. So how much exhaust do you think I was exposing myself to like out on the road? Like, yes, I was doing a good thing, but then you mix that with my genetics and everything else about me as a, as a body. And maybe that just was the right, I don't know. I'll never know. Yeah. And all I can do is the best that I can do.
1: Right. There, there are so many environmental things that we can't can't control. Uh, my family's home was was near a penicillin manufacturing facility, and I can remember waking up smelling sulfur in the air so many days. And to this day, I'm allergic to I'm allergic to penicillin. Three, three of my siblings have cancer. And two of them died, and one of them is still with us. But you know, what are the odds of eleven people getting out of eleven kids? So it's like, hmm, is there an environmental component to this? Who knows? But anyways, I've moved on because um, for me, it's, um, you know, I don't want the pity party. I, yeah. for me, it was not uh, why me, but what's next and how do I, yeah. how do I leverage this chapter in my life and move on and make the most of it? Because Absolutely. I can't do anything about what, has happened. Although I, I did seriously make some changes to my diet. I had a good diet, but I was a big milk drinker and mm. I'm off, I'm off milk. And that, oh my God, that I believe it was my acupuncturist who said, change your diet. And I had a pretty good diet, but he said, change your diet. And he removed milk products. And I believe that was a key to inflammation in my body in other parts of my mm. body. I think that was, I mean, I, I lost about 15 pounds as part of this journey. I'm not back. I'm not down to my high school weight. I love it.
0: That's awesome.
1: Yeah. Really
0: an interesting thing about the dairy as well is the hormones. Oh yeah. Which is curious. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyways, what's next is my, my, uh, my, my outlook on life. How do I leverage this? And I, I think I've done a pretty good job uh, leveraging my passion for making a recovery for, uh, for uh, my love of the, of playing. I love to yeah. play and I love to play sports.
0: Yeah. And um,
1: I think that brings us to uh, this, this game of pickleball.
0: Oh which, uh, yes.
1: I'm guessing many of your, your listeners don't know what pickleball is.
0: Yes. Let's talk about that.
1: <laughs> okay. So uh, pickleball is like a, a mini tennis game played with a, a paddle, a solid paddle and a wiffle ball. The court is about the size of, is the same size as a badminton-sized court.
0: Okay.
1: But the net is lower like a tennis court net, but just a little bit lower than a tennis court net. And um, scoring is different from um, from tennis. It's a very family-friendly game invented in 1965 by some dads who uh, had some teenagers who were pretty bored during the summer. One of them had a badminton-sized court and gave them table tennis paddles and a little ball and said, go play, go, go make up a game. And the next thing we know, somebody, one of the dads is making this plywood paddle a little bit bigger than a, than a, um, a t- table tennis paddle. Somebody had a wiffle ball and they're batting this ball back and forth. And then they said, wow, this is fun. Let's come up with some rules, came up rules. And then they said, wow, we need a, we need a name to name this game. And if you play a game like pickleball, especially if you're a tennis player, which I am, you need to know why it's called pickleball because people have these connotations about pickles and <laughs> weirdness like that. But one of the legends about the name of the, the, the origin of the name of the game is that it was named after one of the inventor's dogs. The dog was named Pickles. Pickles like <laughs> changed, Pickles like to chase the ball. It became Pickles Ball and then pickleball. So I'm sticking with the dog story because everybody loves the dog story. It's a very endearing, family-friendly type game. It just kind of Tells you a little bit more about the game. Although the game has gone viral, it started out with that family fun, but then uh, um, older adults gravitated to it because it's um, less impact than tennis. It's more fun. It's more social. Um, so it became huge among baby boomers, Arizona, California, Washington state, uh, very, very popular, Florida. And then then people took it north to say, hey, start pickleball games there. but um, uh, Now um, there are millions of people playing pickleball. It's a type of game that I play it almost every day of the week, and while I'm getting a great workout, I'm not abusing my body like I did when and I couldn't do that. But when I was playing tennis, I could play a couple of times a week. I had to find something else to do on the other days. I couldn't do that when I was playing basketball regularly. It was just too abusive on my body. But this game I can play almost every day and get a great workout, meet friends, and we and it's a. We play it outdoors now, and uh, it's very COVID friendly because we are socially distant in the game. And, um, you know, it's just, um, it's been a lifesaver for me during, not only since I started playing the game, but also during this COVID period where I have a fun way to exercise and stay somewhat connected to to friends.
0: Yeah, Um, I love that. I think it was really interesting what you said earlier too about getting a PT consult before your surgery and then following up on that because staying moving was so critically important to you for all those for all those reasons that you just said about staying connected and and moving your body and. I think that that was so brilliant. Had anyone recommended that to you or was that just something that you took the initiative to do? Um,
1: I took the initiative to do that because I knew what was coming. Yeah. I knew that there would be a big impact on my ability to, to move after surgery. So I wanted to be ahead of the game and line up my people to help me get better, to recover. And it was very powerful. Very it, it worked.
0: Yeah, I think that is so, so critical, so critical to the process. And that is something that I definitely would like to see more people being encouraged to do, even just to have those consults, mm-hmm. um, so that they know that they have their full mobility or that they can work to their work toward that full mobility without being afraid. I think sometimes that fear starts to, to drive the bus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's, that was really, I wanted to just point that out because I thought that was so, so brilliant on your part.
1: Yeah. I think we, we have to be proactive when these things come up and we have to be our own advocates because there's no playbook for it.
0: No, no. I like to say that, um, there's just no manual for for survivorship. So well,
1: networking with those who have come before you.
0: Yes, is <laughs> very
1: powerful. Yes, and I, and I did reach out, and uh, well, once you're once you're a person with a cancer diagnosis, it's amazing the number of other people you meet who are in the same um, the same group. Yeah, it's kind of sad in many ways. That there's so many of us but-
0: there are fortunately we I think that those of us that there are we're seeing more and more people like I was stage two you were stage one like we're seeing more and more people in those very early stages which I always tell people that's where I want everyone to be mm-hmm. I want everyone to be in those early stages because we don't know What flips the switch in one person versus another and those regular checkups and screenings and all those things are just so important to keep us in this place where we can keep doing the things that we love to do. And I know you have, um, you are an ambassador for pickleball. And I believe you've taught some classes for life with cancer. Is that in life with cancer is an organization here in the Northern Virginia area connected with um, the ANOVA hospital system. It's a very nice program that we have available to us here, but I would love to know, did the classes you've taught for them, do they, how do they differ uh, or do they differ from the class that you might offer just to the general public?
1: So I took advantage of the classes at Life with Cancer and as I get to know the staff, you know, they get to know me and learned about pickleball and they thought, "Oh, this is interesting." And then they asked me if I would teach begin teaching classes. And how can I say no? <laughs> I'm a, I'm an instructor and I just love to teach and I I know I know how meaningful, how powerful this game was in terms of my recovery and I just want to give back and get other people moving and like you said, if you like some, if you like doing something, you're gonna do it. Yeah. And so most people love this game of pickleball, and I thought, let's go for it. Um, so Life with Cancer has a beautiful family center off of Gallows Road in uh, in Fairfax County. Okay. And they have a they have a, a beautiful exercise room, windows on windows looking into looking out into a beautiful garden on one side mirrors on another wall <laughs> fitness equipment on another wall low ceiling <laughs> but um, what I was able to do is figure out okay we can play a modified we can I can do I can do, teach basic skills using this modified space the room wasn't quite big enough the ceiling wasn't quite high enough I have mirrors behind me Right. Nice. <laughs> less windows on one side but I can do it so I modified the game and I've actually modified the game for other populations as well. Um, so we do it inside. So- we, well, this is all pre COVID. I, mm-hmm. I was teaching once a month and I'd have uh, up to eight students. I usually have one or two people helping me. Um, these are uh, also people with a cancer diagnosis and who have embraced pickleball, And it's always fun to have them help me out. And I just adapted the skills and you know, these are the basic ball handling skills and and then devised some little mini games that we could play, so that you know they could understand that it, how how much fun it is not only to learn the skills but also to play little mini games with the with this this paddle and ball. And yeah, so I'm I'm hopefully, hopefully, we'll get back to it um, after classes resume and indoor activities resume because um, it brought smiles to people's lives. It got them moving in a fun way that. Um, you know, that maybe they hadn't been moving before. And I believe um, when I teach people, I call them athletes and they love that. <laughs> and I also teach um, some fitness skills as part of the game is, which you'll find out this afternoon, because um, the game is building block for life skills, for keeping fit. We do a lot of work with our quads and having strong quads is really important as we age
0: Sitting to standing.
1: Absolutely. And Those sit-to-stand
0: skills are so huge.
1: Right? This, so this is just a fun way to incorporate a lot of the, the life skills, um, fitness skills that we need in our regular life in a fun, game-like way. So everything I do is purposeful, and um, not only to the game, but also to for life skills. So it's 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 been a joy to meet more people and, and to uh, share my passion with them and share the power of this game. Um, and I've been teaching enough that I can generally adapt it to, so that, um, I can, I can meet your needs and, and get you playing the game.
0: Yeah. I'm a huge fan of anything that meets people where they are and encourages them to have fun because I think that the fun component is what brings people back. It's what keeps people coming and what keeps people engaged. And there's... There's that accountability too, right? Too unstoppable, the whole the whole theory behind too unstoppable is two people. You connect two people together so they show up for one another. And sometimes just getting out the door is the most difficult part. And once you get someone beyond that part, it's all gravy after that. So I think that's amazing. So one of the other things that you had mentioned, and I think this is an important thing to circle back on because I hear it come up a lot. When you had that meeting with the oncologist where you declined the AI, one of the things that I notice is that a lot of the AIs have significant impact to joint and muscle, how the joints and muscles feel, not necessarily a negative impact to the joints themselves, but how we feel and our ability to move. And I was on an AI for a very, very brief time um, because I had an allergic reaction to tamoxifen. And um because I am not postmenopausal, tamoxifen is my only option without go- having hormone suppression therapy to take an AI. AIs are something they can use postmenopause because of the way the hormones are all that technical stuff. (laughs) Um, but I hear this a lot from folks, um, taking AIs that they have a lot of joint muscle discomfort. And one of the things I found was that mobility moving made a big difference, like getting out doing cardio type movement. Um, and for me being an athlete, the amount of movement I needed every day was reasonably significant. Um, and I always tell people you have to get curious and and experiment. And I have said before, like my doctor was very attached. It was one of the only things that he was super attached to me doing. Everything else was kind of a conversation. in this particular situation, like I couldn't get answers to my questions on percentages and because i think that he knew if i knew the percentages that i would say no thank you yeah. <laughs> like right up front okay. and my mom had a dcis a year and a half ago and she took tamoxifen for 1 month um it was not going well and the doctor was like yeah we're doing research now to see if it's even necessary cuz i think we are seeing a lot of people who are in those very early stages. And ultimately my doctor said to me when I was having horrible, I was swelling with fluid and it was, it had reached a a point where it was no longer a discussion. And then I determined there was gluten in the medication and I am celiac. So I was like, there's gluten in this. And there is gluten in almost all of those AIs. There is one option um, that does not have gluten. So for me, I was like, I'm allergic. It says, do not take if you're allergic. That's it, it's no more discussion. But the more research I've done, the more I found that a large percentage of people don't do the five year course, they fail at some point in the first year to year and a half a large percentage of people say eh, i'm good <laughs> okay. i want to go back to being you know to controlling my body again uh-huh. so i think for people who are taking those medications and experiencing that kind of discomfort something like pickleball might be a great way to start to move their to experiment with moving their body in kind of a whole body way and see what the effects are
1: um i i would agree i think this game is terrific for most people because it can be adapted and um that's yeah i'm known in the area as uh, an evangelist for pickleball because of my efforts to promote the game teach start new programs they also call me the pickleball queen
0: <laughs> awesome I love that
1: <laughs> anyway it's uh women is key it is because it does uh, not only does it good for your joints but it's also good for your mentally yes um, and as you mentioned keep it fun you know pickleball can be as serious or as recreational as you want it it's 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 up to you it's just it's hitting the ball back and forth but because it's so it's pretty easy to start hitting the ball and seeing success like yes. uh, as a as a tennis player and I'm a lifelong was a lifelong tennis player I always said it, it takes a lifetime to become a decent tennis player but not so much with pickleball you know a couple lessons and you're off up That's and running and having fun so yeah yeah so the um, AI discussion I'm I know I'm I'm I may be taking a risk by not taking an AI, but, you know, I guess what you're worried about is the recurrence rate. Yeah. And I was <laughs> pretty satisfied with the recurrence rates, projected recurrence rates. And I always, I'm always skeptical, sort of skeptical about studies because who's in that, who who are the people in those studies? How many of those people are, are motivated like me to change your lifestyle to try and make a difference? How many of them are, or just, oh, give me the pill and, uh, and that's all I need to do. Um, yeah. Any major changes.
0: The, the curious thing for me as well, there's literature that comes with the Tamoxifen every month. It's like, I don't know, eight or 10 pages that the pharmacy puts in. And there are two studies that they include in that literature. Currently, there was only one at the time. And it was normalized, kind of normalized statistics across many studies. That had been done on the drug. And it said, of a thousand people who got the drug, 10 had a recurrence. Of a thousand people who got the placebo, 17 had a recurrence. Wow. Wow. So a total of 27 people out of 2,000 had a recurrence. The difference between 10 and 17 is 43%. But it was only 1.35% of the people who had a recurrence, all the people. And I said to a nurse that called me about a month and a half after I stopped taking the medication. And she said, well, we really need you to go back on that. And I said, well, riddle me this. This study says 1.35% of all the people actually had a recurrence, not 43%. 1.35% of all the people. And she said, well, we don't want you to be the 1.35%. And I said, at 1.35%, I'm having a recurrence anyway. I would prefer not to be an alien in my body between now and then. So thank you. I appreciate your concern. I understand what you're telling me. I. And making a conscious choice. And I was like, 1.35%. Like, I can throw spaghetti at the wall and have a better, like, more than 1.35% is going to stick. <laughs> yeah. So, and I also said, to your point about statistics, because I always say that's an example of lying through statistics, like it's 43% effective. Yes, for 1.35% of the people. Like, there's a—it's such a disconnect there. But also, I said, can you tell me that all the people and that that these 1.35% of the people do they all look like me? Are they my age? Do they have my level of physical fitness? Do they have the type of diet that I have? Like, did they do the treatments that I did? Like, do they look like me? Well, we don't know. And I'm like, unless a hundred percent of these people look exactly like me, this is not compelling.
1: Correct. Now, for those who uh, are taking AIs, there's a reason why you're taking them, and yes. I don't. Every everybody is different.
0: Absolutely. And, and
1: everybody has to live with their own decisions and be comfortable yes. with that. And I'm I'm comfortable with my decision. And what's the worst thing that could happen? Well. <laughs> Cancer comes back and then we deal with it. But meanwhile, I'm living my
0: life. Yeah. Absolutely. We all have to do the things that make us feel comfortable Mm -hmm. and then navigate and navigate. It's a, it's a lot of, we do a lot of navigation after the fact.
1: That's a good word.
0: And we don't always, oftentimes like the there's not enough research into movement and how movement can benefit people who are on AIs, mm. which is for me like a passion area of mine, that mm. and, and lymphedema.
1: Yeah. So, yes, it's a um, passion area of me also, but also um, pre- preventive health is also really important. So, I, yes. you know, I, in 1970, 71, Nixon, President Nixon declared a war on cancer. Yeah. I just want to know how much of that money, how much of that billions of dollars has gone into the preventive side of cancer. And yeah. I, I, I can only imagine the tiny, tiny part has gone into that part. And that just really bothers me that there's so much more emphasis on what to do after you get the illness, after you get cancer versus you know, maybe some steps you can do to maintain a healthier lifestyle.
0: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And movement is definitely right up there at the top. I was reading a study the other day about, um, for people who have sedentary jobs who sit in at a desk for, we'll call it eight hours a day might be more. Um, they were saying 30 minutes of like active, exercise was what was needed to kind of combat the all the time of sitting like getting really getting moving and getting out for a brisk walk or 30 it was 30 to 40 minutes of really active exercise. So I bet I bet pickleball would qualify. I'm oh, going to find out.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it would definitely qualify and you know, interesting enough uh, I I teach a lot of people uh, how to play pickleball? I have probably about fifty or sixty students a week. A lot of them, uh, um, a greater majority of them are are female, for some reason. But I think it's because why? I'm certainly of the generation, the pre Title IX generation, and so back in the day, it wasn't um, socially correct for women to sweat to play or whatnot. And now I'm seeing women flock to this game because why? They can play it, and they're they're bringing out their inner spirit, their inner play spirit. And it's just so rewarding to see that. And then to add that onto any type of medical condition that you're maybe dealing with, and we're all dealing with something as we get older. It's just uh, so enriching, so rewarding for me to give back what I see as the power of play and and get people moving in a way that they'll they'll keep, keep coming back. They'll want more. We, in fact, we talk about, Once you become introduced to pickleball, you become addicted to the sport. You (laughs) you want to keep playing.
0: That's fantastic. Well, I am so excited to get on the court with you a little bit later and learn more about this game. So thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your story and your passion.
1: Thank you for having me. And thank you for what you do to spread good a good message about. Uh, for people with with a cancer diagnosis.
0: Well, thank you. And I'll see you in a bit. Thank you so much, Helen, for sharing your story and your passion for the game of pickleball today. Your face just lights up when you talk about this sport. Following our interview, I headed out to meet Helen on the pickleball court for a lesson. We had so much fun. As we got started, Helen told me her goal for our lesson was for me to be successful, have fun, and look good doing it. A lady after my own heart, for sure. If we're successful and having fun, we are much more likely to come back. In our one-hour lesson, she reviewed the equipment we were going to use, a paddle and a wiffle-type ball, talked about the court and how it differs from tennis, a sport we've both played, and she then taught me the fundamentals in bite-sized skills, perfect for ensuring success looking good, and having fun. We were even able to get in some gameplay before our hour was up and the next players were arriving for their court time. If you're interested in trying out Pickleball, you can find the link to locate a local USA Pickleball ambassador in the resources for episode 43 and in the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. I'm working on setting up a lesson or two in Loudoun County, Virginia. Be sure to join the Facebook group to stay in the loop on that. And if you get out to try some pickleball or you're a regular pickleball player already, please post in the group. Share with other members and let them know what you're up to and how much fun it is. I definitely want to hear from you. And let me know what kind of movement is inspiring you or what you want to learn more about. That concludes our episode for this week. Join me next week when we'll be talking about more creative ways to get moving as we navigate this survivorship world. Thanks for listening and have a great week.